there is a power to knowing your language well. And so my students correct me and, and I cherish that and I welcome that in it and then celebrate that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the How to Have Kids Love Learning podcast, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators to help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication, and I serve as the executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and engage in self-directed learning through project-based storytelling. And I'm Ed's co-host, Beau Brusco, a former English language arts teacher and multimedia journalist. And it is my pleasure to introduce to you our guest today, Maria Vidas. Maria is a high desert middle school Spanish language arts teacher and dual immersion secondary program coordinator at Bend Lapine Schools in Bend, Oregon. Last year, she implemented the Journalistic Learning Initiative's Effective Communicators course. And we are delighted to have her on today to talk about her experience. Welcome, Maria. How's it going? It's going well. I'm happy to be here. Maria, uh, I think a good place to start is to sort of um, talk to us about your particular group of students in in uh, in your area and maybe some of the struggles that they're facing uh, and possibly how you relate to them as an educator in, uh, in Ben Lapine. Yeah. And if I may, uh, I'm going to start actually with myself and you know, sure. who I am in this program for these students. And then we can um, I can elaborate a little bit on them as well. So I'm I'm from Oregon. I grew up in Astoria and having a name like Maria Vitas, there is a lot of assumptions about me and my identity. Um, Spanish is not actually my heritage language. It's actually the third language that I learned. My first language is English. If I were to have learned it, Greek would be a heritage language for me uh, because my, on my dad's side of the family, um, my grandparents are both were both born in, and raised almost completely in Greece. Wow. And and when I was in high school, I actually studied French, and I didn't start that learning until I was in high school. So I, when I graduated from the University of Oregon and knew I wanted to learn Spanish, I had studied anthropology there, and I had thought that I wanted to go into um, like midwifery, nurse midwifery, but I knew that for the work that I wanted to do in the United States, that knowing Spanish would be a really vital resource. So I moved to Spain. There's a, um, a scholarship available to teach kind of as, as an assistant teacher in the public education program in Spain. So that was my first encounter with dual language programs. I actually taught in the regular strand where students, you know, the early language development in, as a second language in most European schools, public schools is pretty common. And so that the school that I worked at was unique and that it was one of those few dual immersion programs in Spain that was actually providing opportunities for their students to to get the I'm not sure what they're called the the in Britain they've got tests that students have to do and that similarly in Spain where once you've obtained a certain level of school of studies it's you've completed the compulsory education and then you you can possibly go into the workforce or do a professional training or go to the university. And depending on, on those grades that you get on those exams, you those pathways open up for you of, you know, you can go to more elite schools um, and universities. And uh, I know that in a lot of places, like to become a doctor, you have to have higher grades on that, on those um, 
entry tests. And so the the school and the 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 first experience and encounter with dual language instruction that I had was at this school, El IES Galileo in Valladolid, Spain, and mm. they were preparing students. You know, it's a working class community. There's a lot of gypsy students, a lot of immigrant students in that school who were accessing this really exceptional program that was allowing students that if they wanted to, they could take the tests at their school and then even continue their education in the um, university system in Britain. And so uh, that was, of course, not serving heritage speakers in any capacity because there is there is a big, pretty big expat community that speaks English in mm. Spain, but not in that neighborhood and not, uh, not that would be accessing the public schools. And so I lived in Spain for about 10 years, and I also got my degree in teaching English as a foreign language, continued to work uh, in and around Valladolid in, in different capacities, working with small children and then uh, continuing to work with baccalaureate students who are then, you know, on that track to go to the university. And I realized that I really enjoyed teaching. And at a certain point with my my kids and my family, my husband is actually from Morocco. And so we are raising our kids trilingually, which is kind of another layer to the oh, work whoa. that I do. I have a really, really wonderful friend who is also raising a trilingual family. So she kind of troubleshooted that for us. Um, and so a lot of my practice comes from that experience in the home too, where my husband ex exclusively engages with our kids in Arabic. I started to mix it because I realized there were times when he needed to be traveling uh, to visit his family where they weren't hearing Spanish or Arabic in the home. And so I was like, well, I guess I better learn Arabic. And so now I've got our, you know, our daily kind of routines in the morning. I, it's English time in the afternoon, it's Spanish time. And then the evening, it's Arabic time. And then we, when we decided to move to the States uh, with my foreign degree and, and hoping to get our kids into the dual immersion program, I applied to work here in this community. And it is a pretty dramatic shift to be working with mostly uh, homogenous, linguistically homogenous, with a, with a few situations of cultural diversity, whether students are gypsy students or what the gypsies in Spain call payos, which is more like the... Um, the dominant Spanish culture. Sometimes there are Bulgarian immigrant students or Moroccan immigrant students in the classes that I was teaching in that kind of dual language or second language development setting in Spain. But here, by design, our dual immersion programs, that's, that's actually a specific term that refers to programs that are teaching two languages, but they are also teaching them to a very specific and at least when they enter the program, calculated demographic of half heritage speakers in one of the target languages, in our case, Spanish, and half heritage speakers, we might say, or native English speakers. Because studies show then that those develop those relationships that development develop within that setting, in addition to um, the leadership that kind of naturally evolves when students are more comfortable in one language or another really elevates the experience of the, both the academic and the social experience of all of the students in a program like that. So it's a very different shift to be suddenly teaching and operating in a, in a language that for some students offers even more privilege than they already have when they're walking into the classroom. And for other students, it's almost a barrier in their mm. home experience if their families only know that language. And then there's another layer here that's really, really amazing within um, 
the populations that we serve in Oregon and especially in Central Oregon is that our systems, I mean, this isn't the, the beautiful part, but our education educational systems are very limited in recognizing they're they're mostly federal mandated systems that are from my vantage point quite antiquated they don't account for trilingual families like our own mm. or multilingual individuals in the system they're, it's really just like you are either an english language learner or you only speak english according to that system and within that system there is no capacity to recognize somebody might be latino identify as Latino, they, the, the term used is the same as in census as Hispanic, but there is no capacity to recognize this person might identify as Latino, but they're indigenous. And so the home language is actually Purepecha or Mayan, and mm. they're flagged as Hispanic, Spanish speaking at home, when the reality is they're not, they're not engaging in Spanish as a first language, it's a second language, or a third language because now maybe English is more dominant. So it's been really fun to get to know the the people that we work with and to see how the conversations that emerge in a Spanish language classroom just kind of inherently bring out and celebrate so much more nuance to their to their identity to begin with and then um, to help us understand as a as an education system really the barriers to opportunities that are that are especially our multilingual families and students face well what's the social economic um sort of uh determiner for the the students that you serve there i can't give specific details on that that's something that we're still working on in terms of flagging you know, like bend as a community is pretty divided uh socioeconomically from the east and the west side most of our student population who are heritage speakers are coming from the east side of Bend. Uh, and most of the students that we're serving who are, you know, there's a bit of more of a mix between the east and the west side in terms of the English speakers, because they're drawing a little bit more from all of, all of Bend. So it's, I, I, I've spent enough time in areas like D.C. where there's a, a really diverse multilingual community, starting with ambassadors and, you know, folks that are at the, the top of the economic spectrum, um, you know, right down to folks who are doing more manual labor work. Um, but in Bend, that's not something that I'm seeing except for in kind of anecdotal examples. Most of our multilingual community are immigrants and um, immigrants seeking asylum or may, who may have, uh, have experienced um, irregular pathways to come to the to our community. Many students then are coming in with parents who left the edu their education, you know, at grade school level or a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. In the in the uh, the short video that uh, John, one of our videographers, did with you, you, you mentioned that you know you notice that kids are coming in seeking agency and that the work that you've been doing with them through JLI this year is really, uh, this past academic year, allowed that to sort of blossom in a sense. And I was just curious about what you observed. Eighth graders kind of, there's, it's like there's a fire that's lit under them almost, almost, in, you know, so, you know, some of them it'll hit in seventh grade, some of them maybe not till they're a little bit older, but there is a, there is a maturity when 
most of them, some of them more respectfully than others, but most of them have a need to begin to question authority. And they'll do that in any way that they have access to. And so to provide all of my students opportunities to question and to engage in conversations and to even point out what the adults have missed is, is really satisfying to me because I see that need so strongly, even though I might assume and I've stopped assuming it because I've seen it happen so many times, even if I feel like I've developed a good relationship with my students in sixth and seventh grade, they might still come in in eighth grade questioning the work that we're doing, questioning me or looking for ways to question my authority even even after, like this is the third year that I'm knowing them. And then on top of that, there is a criticality to, to being bilingual that I think is really vital and, and necessary to be a part of the program. Not all students are drawn to that. Not all of our families politically align with that desire for criticality, but I, I, for me, because we're serving both native English speakers and the very diverse group of heritage Spanish speakers, there has to be a level of criticism and agency to say, no, I'm going to tell my story as you know, I'm, an, I'm a native Puro Pecha speaker who's also learning Spanish, who's also engaging in this very, I would argue, very white community here in Bend. And then what does it mean then for a native English speaker who's becoming increasingly proficient and literate in this second language, utilizing this resource and entering into other conversations? And so not just looking at age, their agency for what their eighth grade inclinations are, but then also aligning that agency with the values of the program, which is to say, me as a European descent, um, native English speaking educator, I can't tell you what you should care about or write about. You have to explore that. And so just inherently the whole process with JLI that students are, we're first asking them, what bothers you? What do you notice? And what bothers you about the world around us? And then for them to take that work and go from there is has been really powerful and really satisfying. What was uh, some of the issues that your students decided to cover that that stand out to you that you'd like to share? One of them, it was intriguing to me that they, of course, are heavily impacted by the wildfire and the smoke. So that was one of the one of the things that they noticed. Mental health was a huge issue. Some of them were talking about it in terms of just student student mental health. Others of them were intrigued about it um, in terms of being an athlete and mental health as an athlete. Uh, gun violence as well, just because that was when when I first rolled this out in August of 2022. That's when the Safeway shooting had just happened in Bend, and so that was mm-hmm. something too that they were really. Um, keen on discussing and and researching as well and it was really sweet to see there were quite a few quite a few students who wanted to turn their gaze back onto our educational community whether it was looking at just the state of our buildings and our school and the environment that they're learning in in a public education setting you're like there's paint peeling off of the walls those kinds of issues um the relationship because the there is especially those eighth graders, their sixth grade year started online. And then the progression from sixth grade to eighth grade with the COVID restrictions was pretty dramatic. And so they were sort of thrust back into the classroom with both students and and conceivably with teachers 
who that that the transition as teachers was just so dramatic of what's important what are we focusing on and 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 every year for it to evolve so dramatically that I was really intrigued by the work that some students did about the value of respect and mm. like in-person engagement in the classroom with regards to how students engage, whether it's respectful or not, and then even teachers and how teachers are engaging with them. So I thought that was really intriguing and also really sweet to see that some students really wanted to explore our program and and look closer at our program. I'm just now remembering that I was really intrigued and impacted just reading what the students were, were talking about was sexism in our schools, because that's something that I know my generation likes to think that we've moved beyond, and it's intriguing to see that the the students who are reporting on that are, are confirming that's not the case. As a public program and as, a pub, as public educators, we have to be able to support everyone. And there, is, um, there are safeguards and policies in place that, as my understanding, have been in place for a long time that ensure families' agency in that their child will not be exposed to any information or any discussion that they do not agree with them engaging with. And the way that gets messy is what I think is controversial and what you think is controversial and what Ed thinks is controversial might be very different. And so the opportunity to allow students to choose their own topic is one way to ensure that nobody is going to be um, bothered by their child's topic because I'm prefacing that whole unit in ways. So that family communication is a huge piece in my role as an educator. But one of the things that since COVID is, has happened is when in the past students would come into our building, this was perhaps, I, th I think that historically this has always been controversial because I know that from my experience in Spain, one of the hugest targets of um, General Franco's fascist takeover were educators. Why? Because if you can't read and if you um, make sure that there are no left-leaning, you know, the members of the republic in classrooms, you can more effectively eradicate any followers of the, the counter-political... Um, entity, which in that case was the losing party in the Spanish Civil War. And so historically, educators have always been targeted when there is, uh, when there are rivaling and in, in especially in, when there's a civil war and there is a takeover by one particular group that comes mm. to power. Um, and similarly, most of the movements to, um, to you know, fully educate and create literate communities where they have traditionally been, disin, you know, uninvolved in the literacy movement or the opportunities to, uh, to obtain literacy are aligned with specific political movements as well. And so that gets complicated when we are serving, of course, a politically diverse community in the public education system, as far as I'm concerned, as we should. And so having those conversations with students, whether it's about LGBTQ plus rights, I'm, if I'm interrupting a student, I had this question, a student asked me this very question, 
do I have to agree with LGBTQ plus? And my answer being like, you have to respect it in this space. You don't have to agree with it. You can think whatever you want. You want to think. You can think whatever you think. And so it's interesting to be navigating those tensions in ways that I don't think that that information is readily accessible. So we see it across the country in the news where, you know, such and such a teacher in Georgia, in Florida, even in, in Eugene, as I've seen in the news, is being singled out for reading this subject or utilizing or reading this book or utilizing this curriculum. And that is being politicized by certain factions But the access to, you know, what is the policy in this school district? What are the requirements that teachers have? What even, even, even being a a teacher that I pride myself in communicating via email, as a parent, I know that there's no way I can read all of the emails (laughs) for all three of my children. And so it's, it's an interesting dynamic where I think that we are at just politically at a juncture in our country where families are more keen and aware. It's showing up in social media cases across the country. And so it's sort of like, whoa, what are my kids doing in, in, in their classrooms? And at the same time, because of COVID, families were kind of looking over the shoulder. Anyone who could and could work from home was looking mm. over the shoulder of their students in ways that wasn't possible before. And even even that implementation of digital platforms, um, I believe across Oregon and, and certainly across the nation so that students could be accessing learning if even if they were home sick or on quarantine and those kinds of things, those continue today. So in theory, access to what our students are learning is, is more available than ever. The policies I think are really robust in terms of pre- preserving parents' rights to be choosing what books their students are reading, what kind of conversations their students are accessing, and that's something I pride myself on as a teacher. But I also know that those systems are reliant on, are predicated on our families being literate and, and literacy not just as uh, being able to decode language, but as that critical literacy, which kind of to me goes back to that agency piece in terms of JLI. Not all of my students might continue their bilingual journey, or nor might they become journalists, but I know that even just as a parent, we have to be able to critically read any situation, any person, any graphic, any document that we receive to be able to effectively, you know, uphold our rights just to begin with and whether we're looking at parent rights in the education system or as members of of the United States as people in the United States so that's kind of that crux to realize that I may be fostering with my students a level of literacy seeking to foster a level of literacy that the families that I'm serving are not able to engage with and then how do you support them is that a phone call? Is it a, you know, is that something that when we're having an open house that they're coming and being able to receive more information if they're not getting that, accessing that in in our regular avenues of communication? Yeah, I think uh, the, where this really gets uh, interesting as it pertains to media and, uh, you know, and understanding and discerning what's, you know, what's uh, credible and what's uh, entertaining. You know, we've done um, work, for example, with uh, young kids where we've, and I say young, I mean middle, middle school, sixth grade, where um, we'll show them like uh, three different reports, weather reports, right, from three different sources. So one is a hurricane, 
and the news anchors are hanging from the lampposts and the wind is blowing and it's so sensational, you know. And then another one is like Inside Edition and maybe the story is about ducks that are trapped and, you know, and, you know, and, and, the, and trying to have students. And then one is sort of like just ABC, you know, evening news and it's reporting on the story, but it doesn't have that sort of sensational angle. And of course, the sensational aspect of it really, really sort of pulls at our emotions, right? And, you know, and, and so we've actually, you know, talked about having young people think about when something really pulls at your emotions like that, you know, notice that, you know, and, and interrogate it further, you know? Yeah. And, and then in the dual language setting, that's a really interesting element and like another layer to that, because in central Oregon, the access to news is really limited. And then the students kind of noticed too, you know, we looked even at the New York times and some of those other um, newspapers that do have some uh, articles in Spanish, but the multimedia resources are so limited from those more reliable news sources in ways that mean, and even even some of the resources that I used with the dual immersion students talked about this, that um, the vast majority of the multilingual community, especially the Latino community in the United States is accessing news on these social media platforms for lack of other platforms. And so um, it's been really, really fun to bring that part, you know, that barrier, the language barrier to access to reliable information into the conversation with with the the dual immersion students because they start to recognize that and we were doing it right at the when the world cup was happening and so folks were super yeah. emotionally involved of course with mex and mexico and when mexico was eliminated like really closely following until argentina won and there was one moment when both argentina and mexico were still in the running when in social media, and the students actually told me about this, where there's a really famous Mexican boxer who goes by Canelo. And mm. he had allegedly in social media, no, excuse me, Messi had allegedly like stomped on the Mexican uniform somehow or the Mexican flag. And so my students were coming in and really, really hyped up about it. Like, oh, Mr. Vidas, did you see what Messi did to the Mexican team? Like, what a shame, what a shame. And I started to look into it and realized like this was just that thing that like People Magazine had totally taken that and uh. sensationalized it. And it was the perfect example because it was something that they, they were personally super emotionally involved with because they were really invested in their team winning, um, but also just adore Messi as a as a player. And so it was fun to kind of decipher that. And it was happening in real time where then people, of course, had to, you know, run another article like, no, it was a mistake. And Canelo, so this, you know, famous boxer is also falling into those traps of being like emotionally pulled into these sensationalized things that he's seeing on social media that ended up not being true at all. <laughs> One of the things you had mentioned in the video, uh, you said something about um, creating a community of curiosity or a community of questioning, so something to that effect. And I think what, what you just shared is a perfect example of that, of, you know, being able to give help students acquire the skills necessary to actually be curious in a way that's effective and to question in, in a way that, that's effective and actually leads them to the facts of the matter. Which I think is so powerful, just as we as, as you discussed, yeah. Yeah, and and even with that example, you know that it's so relevant. It's part of their day to day, and it was. And this was actually a sixth grader, so she won't engage with this with me until we get to eighth grade. But the student who had first talked to me about it and kind of 
pointed this situation out to me. It, I could utilize those JLI resources and that kind of that questioning of like, what is your sense of Leo Messi? Like, what kind of a player is he? What kind of an attitude does he have? Does this seem like it's in character for him? So that even without looking at other sources, she was able to, I was able to utilize kind of that layer of questioning about, um, is this, is this a genuine uh, experience or not for a student to kind of get to that conclusion anyway, and then report back to me the next day <laughs> when it was confirmed. <laughs> Well, uh, one last thing I want to chat about before we finish up here is, uh, uh, you know, your experience as a dual immersion um, teacher and, and program leader and, uh, you know, being trilingual and, and just so much experience with language and uh, all of the students you've ever had from all these different um, backgrounds and different households. How have you seen language build bridges uh, among students in your classroom? just uh, developing language and uh, increasing understanding. You mean like them being able to work in both languages? Yeah, well, and and I think uh, Spanish is a really interesting language to be the vehicle for those conversations because, um, of course, language is dependent on human interaction. It's inherently social. Um, yeah. It's that experiment that, could never have been done intentionally because it would be too cruel. Um, but the hypothesis is, and there have been just a handful of cases of humans who've been so isolated and, you know, in a really traumatic and cruel way that would never be intentionally replicated, um, had been so isolated from human interaction that they're at the critical times, their brains didn't develop language in the same way. Um, so that inherent interaction to language development is really beautiful to be working with students in Spanish because there are registers in the way we show respect. It's the same in, in French and in many languages, there is a formal tense within which we can choose to engage. And so we, of course, I think immediately recognize respectful and, and maybe less appropriate or disrespectful language in English, but it is so precise in Spanish. And it's a little different mm. across the Spanish-speaking world. But So to have those conversations with students with usted and tú, and even to point out and call out, you know, like, I'm coming from Spain. Folks don't use usted in the same way unless you're speaking to the king of Spain. Mm -hmm. um, but here in this, and so here in this classroom, you're going to hear me refer to each of you as to, I'm hearing a lot of you refer to me as usted with your families. I've learned I'm only using usted unless that family initiates it and kind of talking through those, those dynamics. And so because in Spanish, there is such an inherent thoughtfulness to showing respect and recognizing who, what each person engaging in this conversation's role is in this community that we we are together in this conversation that's really powerful it's also of course just we always are constantly confronted with language as either a barrier or an opportunity too and so i think that within our education system whether it's just that deficit thinking to think that you know it's really 20th century thinking but it's, there are still remnants of that that guide some federal policy and that also, unfortunately, seep into biases in the way that we as humans engage with one another, that to be multilingual or to speak a language other than English is to be you know, mentally inferior, which was the, the educational theory that most um, 
20th century education was predicated on. Um, and so there, that kind of rebuilding of the value of, of language and multilingualism um, is also really powerful because it's, there is a power to knowing your language well. And so my students correct me and, and I cherish that and I welcome that in it and then celebrate that. And then sometimes intriguingly, they're the students who, who have the most like social, emotional and like socioeconomic barriers to education who are the, the strongest heritage speakers. There is a power to knowing one's language well that I'm trying to celebrate and foster too, because that that is something that it's it's just so precious. Like at at, at some point, my grandparents decided that English was better than Greek. So my my first two like oldest aunt and uncle. It was like they progressively learned less as my grandparents learned more English. There was less mm. Greek in the household. And so I've inherited that experience and that choice in ways that I can encourage students, whether it's in our classroom or it's at home, to continue to choose to engage in that. Just, you know, a lot of our students speak to that, to be coming from another country and not knowing English and to be able to immediately make connections with their peers. Like, yes, we're important as adults in the classroom, but not nearly as important as those peer connections and for them to have um, that common language and to be able to connect with one another uh, is really fun. And then it's not really part of our curriculum, but the students who do come in, whether they're coming from another country or whether they, in their household setting, have preserved that more colloquial language, there is a real power to having, you know, being able to just throw a dig yeah. <laughs> or an insult or, you know, throw throw the, the, the foul language around in the hallway and I'll hear it and uh, I heard that <laughs> and call them out on it. Yeah. But there'll be three other people who don't, you know, three other adults in between me and them who don't understand what they're saying. And so that's really interesting too, all that nuance to it. Thank you so much for yeah, just bringing that experience uh, into this conversation, Maria. I uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and, and thanks for being with us on, on this podcast. My pleasure. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.